This is American Rhapsody, a podcast of the Briscoe Center for American History at the University of Texas at Austin. Each episode, we interview those who witnessed American history firsthand, who have since donated their archives to the Briscoe Center. We also talk to historians, journalists, and others who research in those collections. We're all asking the same question, what actually happened? I'm Johanna Lawrenson. I'm Abby Hoffman's wife, companion, and co-organizer, and running mate, as he used to call me. And we spent seven amazing romantic years underground, and there were many fascinating stories from those years still to be told. The money had been collected, the people gathered, and the journalists tipped off. In order to pass as a tour group, they had no placards or megaphones. Some had dressed in their Sunday best and shaved their beards. The security guards bought it, and they were allowed onto the viewing balcony that overlooked the New York Stock Exchange. Once in place, whispers and winks were exchanged, and then the show was on. The group, led by the activist Abby Hoffman, tossed 300 $1 bills onto the floor of the Stock Exchange from the gallery above. The brokers stopped working. Some cheered, some cursed, and several scrambled for the money. The security guards quickly escorted the group out of the building, where the reporters were already waiting. It was August the 24th, 1967, and the prank launched its protagonists into the realm of protest celebrity. It was the sort of stunt that Abby Hoffman pioneered in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Today, the combination of celebrity, spectacle, comedy, cynicism, and political protest seems normal. But at the time, it was deemed radical and subversive, a threat to the fabric of post-World War II American society. I'm Don Carlton, and this is American Rhapsody, a podcast of the Dolph Briscoe Center for American History. Today, we're discussing the life and legacy of Abby Hoffman, whose papers, all 300 linear feet of them, now reside at the Briscoe Center. Abby Hoffman was born in 1936 in Massachusetts to a middle-class Jewish family. He graduated from Brandeis University in 1955 and went on to study psychology at Berkeley. In the early 60s, he worked in voter registration efforts for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. A founder of the Youth International Party, or the Yippies, as they were better known, Hoffman was renowned for his acerbic theatrical innovations in carrying out public protest. During the zenith of his celebrity, Hoffman was an avid writer and speaker, touring college campuses and publishing books, including Revolution for the Hell of It, and still this book. In 1968, Hoffman was among the leaders of the anti-Vietnam War protest at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, which was broken up by a police riot. A year later, Hoffman was arrested, along with seven other anti-war leaders, including Jerry Rubin and Tom Hayden and Black Panther co-founder Bobby Seale, on a federal charge of engaging in a conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot, among other charges. 
They were tried in federal court with five of the accused, including Abby Hoffman, convicted of the main conspiracy charge. In 1972, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals reversed their convictions. That same year, Hoffman was arrested and charged with drug trafficking in New York. To avoid a mandatory life sentence, he skipped bail, underwent plastic surgery, and lived as a fugitive until 1980. After serving a short sentence, he became active in the environmental movement. He died in 1989. In my opinion, Abby Hoffman has not gotten his proper due as an important figure in the history of American protest movements. Often dismissed as a clown and a buffoon by the news media, Hoffman was actually an intellectual who took his social and economic justice and anti-Vietnam War activism very seriously. He was a pioneer of a new street theater approach to activism, believing that it would gain more attention for the causes he advocated than traditional speechmaking and march organizing. He also played a key role in two of his era's most important flashpoints over the First Amendment, the Chicago police riot of 1968 and the ensuing court case known as the Trial of the Chicago Seven. Ring any bells? That may be because of the movie Trial of the Chicago Seven, directed by Aaron Sorkin and starring the British comedian Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays Hoffman. A notorious prankster himself, there's poetic irony to Cohen playing that role. Whether or not it's a good movie, I'll leave to you. But is it accurate? What does it get right or wrong? Today's guest is Johanna Hoffman Lawrenson, Abby's widow, who will discuss their shared life together, both in the spotlight and on the run. We'll also discuss her decision to bring Abby's papers as well as her own to the Briscoe Center, and we'll see what she thinks of the movie. Johanna is interviewed by Dr. Sarah Sonner, the Center's Associate Director for Curation, who last year produced an exhibit at the Briscoe Center on the Abby Hoffman papers. Afterward, you'll hear me interviewing Bob Abzug and Thorne Dreyer. Bob is an author and a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, who speaks about Abby's early influences and his cultural significance. And Thorne is a veteran political activist and editor of underground newspapers in the 60s and 70s, most famously the Rag in Austin and Space City News in Houston. But first, let's hear from Johanna. Johanna, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Well, maybe we should start. You all lived underground while he was a fugitive from the law. And so what was it like living that way? And you mentioned a few places that you traveled. Yes. Well, it it was extremely exciting and sometimes dangerous, but most of it was very good. And we lived in uh, Mexico for a lot of the time. And we also lived in Europe and in the Thousand Islands in upstate New York. You mentioned it was scary sometimes. So how was it, just living under aliases? Well, yes, we lived under aliases, and uh, that wasn't scary. 
<laughs> what, what was scary <laughs> was when we thought perhaps we might be caught or somebody was going to betray us. But that didn't happen very often. So we were lucky. I remember when I was going through his archive, I came across a pamphlet that was called 100 Ways to Disappear and Live Free. There was no author or publication date on that, but I was really interested to see that among his papers. Uh-huh. Well, I haven't read it myself, but I've lived it. <laughs> so how did you cope having to move often? I mean, I'm, I wonder how often you had to move or if you, you mentioned the Thousand Islands. So that sounds like it was a real home base for you all. Uh, it was when I brought him uh, up there in 1976. It was in a cottage that my great-grandmother built, uninsulated, getting our water from the river. And Barry Freed and I lived there for both six, eight months out of the year. He did a lot. He learned how to be a carpenter. He built a dock. He was a great cook. So he was my cook and gardener, and I was his landlady. So it was a very, very good time. And at that time, the second year we were there, the Army Corps of Engineers came to destroy the St. Lawrence River. They wanted to make the big ships to be able to come through in in the wintertime, which meant breaking up the ice, and the ice breaking up would, would ruin the shoreline. And, of course, the river has to sleep in the winter, and it would keep it from doing that. So it was a long battle. It was eight years, the U.S. and Canada involved in five states and four provinces. And it, it we had to take it to Washington and to Ottawa, and we won. It took a long time. It took eight years, but we won, and there's no winter navigation now. They have to stop in the fall, in the late you know, November, December, and not start up again till March when the ice is broken up. So even while you and Abby were in hiding, you still kept up the activist work and, you know, internationally as well. That sounds like quite an endeavor. Yeah, well, I mean, people complimented Barry Freed on his good organizing work (laughs) without knowing who he was, but his activism never wavered. And he did important political and environmental organizing right up to his death in 1989. Many of the next generation activists that Abby worked with in his later years remain organizers and leaders in a wide range of environmentalists, peace, healthcare, and social justice movements. So even locally, the children of our neighbors became environmental lawyers. Save the River, which we started in 1978 when the Army Corps of Engineers was coming to tell us how they were going to destroy the river. We defeated them there at the meeting. The first meeting, we got 800 people out in August 78 for the Army Corps. And they came with generals with all their medals. And Barry Freed went up to one of them and said, listen, you haven't won a war since World War II. What makes you think you're going to win this one? <laughs> so we we set them, you know, you have to set them off guard to start with. But it took a long time. It's such a testament to your and Abby's work. And also, it sounds like a testament to his mentorship of other generations of activists. Oh, yes, definitely. I, I, I mean, I think of Extinction Rebellion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although many of them don't even know who Abby is, but they certainly are carrying on his tradition. And of course, we we did, you know, after we became above ground, 
we did all sorts of organizing. We took tours to Nicaragua to see the revolution. We fought nuclear waste trucks being transported from Canada into the U.S. and won. And I think practically every organization Abby ever started from when he was in Worcester, Massachusetts, still exists. That's how good he was. His archive is such a testament to that as well through from the 60s all through the 80s as well. I was going to ask you if you could talk a little bit about after he came out of hiding and served a short sentence. He seems to have been a little more quiet and more contemplative than maybe the firebrand we can see from film footage in the 60s. I wondered what you thought of that and if he was different in the 80s. Well, as any good organizer would do, they change with the times. You know, in the movie, they stick to his 1960s organizing, but he always said you have to have one foot in the system and one foot in the streets. So he urged young people to develop democratic organizational structures and to use majority decision-making rather than consensus when complex questions arise, both because he felt it was more democratic and because it could be difficult to reach consensus when there were FBI agents in the room with you. So it, it wasn't that it, he changed, he, he just developed more. And going to the movie, it does make that point that there there's FBI infiltration of the organizing group. Uh, what did you think of the movie itself? Well, I think it's a very good movie. M, capital M, capital O, capital V, capital I, capital E. <laughs> the... the I thought Sasha Baron Cohen did a good job. I never say what Abby would like, but I think I can safely say that he would have liked Sasha's performance. But basically, there were some fundamental flaws. And it seems that the people that were there, the women that Sorkin excluded from the movie, have legitimate complaints. And the people who weren't there or too young loved the movie. <laughs> Which is, a, aside from the the one in particular, is having Dave Dillinger hit a, a court person was just unconscionable because he was a passive resistance in World War II and all his life, right? So that was inexcusable drama. The other one, which was not so inexcusable, but wasn't, you know, really true, was the burning of the bras. You know, maybe one woman burned their bra, but burning the bras was, it's its more a myth than actually happened. What happened was the women just took their bras off. That was it. Didn't wear them anymore. So that's one thing. The other thing is he left the women out. Well, Nancy Kershon was Jerry Rubin's girlfriend, and Anita was Abby's wife. And Nancy Kershon was with Jerry all the time. I mean... I know there were infiltrating FBI agents undercover, but it wasn't Jerry who they made look like Cheech and Chong or whatever that the duo is. I mean, um, she wasn't with him. It was Nancy Kirshen that was with him. And Nancy and Anita, they both burned judges' robes in front of the courthouse. I mean, they they had a very dramatic part in this, and, and they were left out. Yeah. So they traveled to Chicago as well for the trial? Well, the trial was very long. I don't know exactly how long. I wasn't in the country during then, that time, but they were 
traveling back and forth. And of course, Abby was going around speaking on campuses during the trial. So I know he was a charismatic and popular speaker on those campuses. And I know that he also did college tours in the 80s as well. That's right. We did it together. So tell me a little bit about how he would prepare for those visits and what was attractive about those speaking tours to campuses. Well, during the trial, it was, you know, mainly for support and fundraising, I imagine. And then in the 80s, it was to tell people, you know, we led delegations to Nicaragua to oppose government interventions in Central America. He supported students opposing CIA recruitment on campuses, which led to an historically important CIA off-campus trial in Massachusetts, which we won. And he was the main advisor to students creating the National Student Convention in 1988. So I think it would be fascinating to, <laughs> if he was still with us today, if how he would have included the stuff on internet and social media and his organizing. I always thought that if he if he had been reincarnated, he would have been born with a phone on his ear. He always had to be one, near one. But that's mainly what we did. And we always had Save the River, because when you have a river, you always have somebody wanting to mess with it. And it's the fact that it's still going. Well, it's, it's wonderful that you all succeeded with that effort. And he was congratulated publicly by Senator Moynihan, you know, under Abby's alias as well. Yes, yeah, so that was at the meeting I told you about where he told the Army, you haven't won a war since World War II. You're not going to win this <laughs> one. And I took that photo of him and Moynihan. And in fact, at that meeting, it was in a an auditorium of a local high school in the Thousand Islands. And I was sitting in the front row, 800 people showed up. And at the end of Barry Freed's testimony, Moynihan said, well, now I know where the 60s have gone. Well, Abby looked at me in the front row and he gave me that look. Does he know? Does he know? And I gave him a little signal, no, no, he doesn't know. He's saying it. So, you know, that was like, for example, a close call kind of moment. But mm -hmm. we, but he didn't know. I guess he must have been mad afterwards when he found out. <laughs> but, yeah, in the 1980s, he began to rely more heavily on reasoned discourse and long-range organizational work. He urged young people to develop democratic organizational structures. And uh, I think they have. I think they got it. He maintained these strong connections with other people and with people in the community and with some quite famous people as well. And I wanted to talk a little bit about those since the archive includes notes from David Bowie and John Lennon, Norman Mailer, Jimmy Carter, uh, a really wide range of people. And I know some might characterize or think of Abby as a contentious person, but he had lots of these different types of connections and friends. Well, they didn't think he was contentious. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he organized with humor and he kept it all the way through all his whole life. I think that's what made it endearing to people because they, he made them laugh because he always said, you know, <laughs> that humor isn't the opposite of being serious. So you mentioned your own archives. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about your archives. You've got the letters in there that really show that it sounds like they carry on Abby's work. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. 
I've been organizing with the people who worked with Abby and I since, uh, well, we started in 2003 against the war in Afghanistan. It was nonstop. Hopefully that's going to end soon. That's the kind of work I did, organizing people to go on marches and write letters, go on television and the radio, and hopefully it's going to reap something. That kind of organizing, it takes an immense amount of coordination and communication and strategizing and having access to these archives is so valuable to see how people go about that and how they succeed at it. And we're so grateful to you for working with us to bring your papers and the Hoffman papers to the Briscoe Center. And I understand that Abby's papers were 75 boxes full. Well, I was guesstimating around that range. And you lived with these boxes in your Manhattan apartment for over 30 years? Well, I moved a couple of yeah. times. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was fine because, you know, I was constantly working with them. People kept giving me more archives, more films. In fact, uh, I just got an email today, and I believe you have them, are the, all the outtakes from a movie called Revolution for the Hell of It that were done in the hotel room during the trial. Evidently, this woman has a script. I told her to send it, send it to you if she didn't know what to do with it. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. And I really hope that his archives will keep his spirit and radical legacy alive. And that it will serve both as a great resource for scholars studying 20th century activism and also as a teaching tool, you know, for all the great young organizers working to create a better world, from ending social and economic injustices to preventing a climate crisis catastrophe, right? I mean, he dedicated his life to social change, to creating a more democratic and egalitarian, compassionate world especially compared to the one we find today <laughs> with so many far right-wing leaders rising internationally. But I'm optimistic. You know, I think the squad is going to have some some additions. So there's going to be more than four. So that could be good. So you've spoken really well about Abby's legacy and the value of his papers uh, as a teaching tool. And I wonder... For students or other people who may have never heard of Abby and heard about what he believed in and his approach to political activism, what do you want them to know? I want them to come and look at the archives. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want them to read, uh, you know, the books. I want them to be inspired by by this movie, to know that they can organize and strategize against a, a government that is bad and win. That's what I want them to know. And I think that I think people are encouraged and it's it's a different time now. You know, there's room for them to organize. There's room for them to do things. I think they're doing so many good things, so many good groups. So I want to go back a bit to the women who were left out of the Trial of the Chicago 7 movie. I'd like to hear more about them. I've read some of Abby's letters to Anita that he wrote during the trial, just from looking through his archives. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about their role. And I know that women were left out a lot in portrayals of the Black Panthers as well. Yes, well, 
Anita was a co-conspirator with Abby, very smart woman, and supported him and throughout the trial and in his underground life, too. So, I mean, support, you know, emotionally, I don't mean financially. As a matter of fact, I had, did not include my FBI files in my archives. I have them still. So I told Don I had, still have another box or two to send you guys <laughs> your way. Well, it turns out that I was one of the 10 most harassed people between 69 and 72. They followed me everywhere, and I had to quit my job. I was a model at the time, and I was a bartender. I had to quit that. They also went to the mother of my boyfriend at the time in Oregon. She didn't know I existed. I mean, it was just horrible. So I finally got on a motorcycle and left New York State and went to Mexico, where I met Abby. And so I always like to say the FBI pushed me into harboring fugitives. Fantastic. I was going to ask how you met him. Yeah, well, we, we you know, been in the same circles in New York, but I was living in Mexico. I had been there a year and he came down and we had a, a mutual friend in common in Mexico. And that's when we got together and we stayed 15 years together with very little separation. It was great. It was great protecting him and covering for him and uh, making sure his slip wasn't showing, you know. The metaphorical slip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had been a fashion model, so I was good at disguises. Of course, I hadn't occurred to me, but yeah, that would make total sense. (laughs) Right. And we traveled all across the United States and we, you know, we'd make phone booth to phone booth telephone calls because, you know, we'd get these credit card numbers of large corporations. And then if we wanted to talk to somebody, we'd just quickly say, go take your puppy for a walk. And they'd go to the local phone booth, which we don't have any now, (laughs) more now. And that's how we would communicate with people who would help us out. And everybody had a code name. You know, there was Lafayette <laughs> there for a French person. I was Jane Shapiro. Abby was Mark Samuels, Barry Freed, Don Friedlander. Well, we had all these IDs. Shirley Rocio was one of mine. But we were pretty good. We were careful. We got stopped once or twice. We were driving through Texas at night, and he's speeding. Oh, my God. So the cop wants to write a ticket or take us to the courthouse. So I just started screaming at him. You mean I'm going to have to drive the rest of the way to Los Angeles? You stupid son of a bitch. So the officer got so riled with me screaming at, at Barry. He said, okay, okay, uh, uh, I'll take you to the post office. You can pay the fine there. <laughs> it was at night. So we went and we did that. And then we got out of Texas. But there were a few examples like that. Once in the south of France, too. But we got out of them. That makes me think about Abby's use of theater as a political tool and how that could affect things on a large and a small scale, too. Yeah, he, he was dramatic. There's no doubt about it. Do you think Abby felt an affinity for, like, thinking of Lennon and Bowie and people that he knew, pop culture figures that he knew, do you think that he felt an affinity with that kind of theatricality and experimentation? Perhaps, or perhaps he just liked the music. I know we stayed at Paul Kander's house underground for a couple of months in San Francisco, 
I mean, people were very helpful to us. Lenin, of course, we, we didn't see underground, but he, he had met him in the 60s. Bowie, we, we met when he played the Elephant Man. We took Abby's daughter, Elia, to the, see the play, and then we went to Bowie's loft afterwards. And, they, you know, so he, they recognized each other as equal participants in the social change of the world, hopefully. So what are your hopes for these archives? You mentioned students having access to them and activists learning from them. I wondered if you could say a bit more about how you hope people will look at these archives. Well, uh, yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I haven't seen how you've organized them yet. I only saw the show, but I'm assuming that if uh, a student comes to you and wants to see some of the writings of his organizing, you know, the, the yellow legal pads with his very legible handwriting, that they will be able to browse through them and that they will be helpful to teach them that how important strategy is and planning rather than just running out on the street, but to know what you're doing when you go there. I have to say, from a research perspective, it's really great when I can work with an archive with legible handwriting. (laughs) (laughs) I used to type for him and correct his syntax and stuff. (laughs) So I know it was really, it was a pleasure to read his handwriting. I noticed that there were successive drafts of pieces that he would be working on. So you could really see the different changes made to word choice or phrasing and pacing and things like that. Oh, yeah. Even once his books were published, he'd read them and <laughs> change things. <laughs> I said, hey, you can't, what are you doing that for? Oh, he had to change it. Yeah. But it was already published. <laughs> So he did a lot of corrective work. He was constant. He he didn't hang out, you know. He he was always working or organizing something. He didn't just sit around and hang out. But I'm glad you enjoyed reading them. Yeah, absolutely. There was one in particular that I came across that it was called Proud to be an Earthman, Ashamed to be an American. And it was written from the perspective of having watched the moon landing just the night before. Oh, I didn't read that. That's funny, because that was when I first met him. A friend brought me over to his house, and they were all in the dark with a big screen to watch the moon landing. My friend and I didn't stay long, but I think they were all on LSD that evening, watching the moon. But I didn't know what he wrote about it afterwards. I think we have that scanned. I included part of it in the exhibit, so I'll see if we have a scan that I can send you. It was just written from the heart in a way that really appealed to me. And he had gone back and changed a few of the words, like I mentioned before. And his view of the United States, his empathy for other people, and his love of and criticism of this country at the same time seemed to be bound up in this this piece. So it really appealed to me. Oh, that's good. Yeah, he was uh, the first real American I ever went out with. <laughs> so for me, that was amazing. I didn't know that life. I was raised in New York and in Paris, so I didn't really know American men like that. And that was very intriguing to me, to meet him, to hang out with him, to drive him around the country <laughs> and in France, England, and uh, you know, I, I would lead the way. It would always be, uh, this is Jane and her boyfriend, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know? 
not really saying the name too clear. So I was the distraction, shall we say, to keep people from focusing on him, that they might recognize him. Of course, his hair was different. His nose was different. He had a beard, you know, So and they weren't expecting him. So we did get away with it quite a bit. Just to wrap up, is there anything that I haven't asked you about, Abby, that you want to make sure we know about? I want people to go and look at the archives because I have been filing them and organizing them for 30 years. And I I want young organizers to go and, you know, learn how to create a better world by reading them and to realize that I think the movie helps a little bit, but seeing the archives would really help. I agree. I think from reading through them myself, I got a sense of hope and optimism thinking about what he had achieved. Oh, yes. He did always have optimism. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to do what he did. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, no problem. Anytime. I want to welcome Bob Abzug and Thorne Dreyer to this uh, American Rhapsody podcast. Bob's been a friend and a professional colleague of mine at the University of Texas for more than 40 years. If you can believe that, Bob. I can believe it. (laughs) And Thorne is a donor to the center, the Briscoe Center, uh, as well as also being a friend. So thanks to you both for uh, being with us today. I appreciate it. Bob. You know, you've looked through some of the Abby Hoffman papers and in the introduction, I explained how extensive that collection is. So our listeners will have hopefully some feel this isn't some little bitty, you know, a few folders. This is a pretty big collection. But you you were able to go through some of the papers. And and after you looked at the papers, you, you mentioned to me that you felt that, you know, it sort of reinforced your thoughts about Abby turning out to be one of the more enduring personalities of the, and I say enduring, not endearing necessarily, depending upon your point of view, but enduring personalities of really one of the most tumultuous eras of recent American history. And you want to elaborate on that? Uh, that's sure, sure. To clarify for the audience, I looked at the early boxes. There were two boxes of material. And as I was told, they were sort of all... It was like a grab bag, which in a way was very good because they hadn't gotten ordered. And if Abby Hoffman was anything, he just wasn't ordered. He didn't fit into a manila folder. So That's a good point. That's a very good point. And the thing that impressed me was the importance of his experience at Brandeis, but even before that, of growing up in a middle-class Jewish family less than a decade after the end of World War II and the Holocaust. We still haven't added up all the traumatic impact all that had on even American Jews who were safe. But he got a taste of that and a connection to that uh, at Brandeis, especially through one of his professors, Herbert Marcuse, who was a refugee. This guy had an audacious, externalized, I'm here kind of personality. You would know when Abby was in town or in the dorm room or wherever. And if you combine that with a radicalization, both cultural and political, that happened to him 
at Brandeis, uh, you've got a pretty powerful prelude to the 1960s. Now, he didn't create the 60s, but he certainly fit in rather well and made his mark. So on a political level, that's one abbey. But the other, and it's very mixed with the political, is the cultural level. That is, walking through all the stoplights of American culture of the 50s, whether it was sexual or racial or whatever, what have you, and following a kind of authenticity. Well, Abby realized himself, I think it's fair to say, and he was at Brandeis at the right time. He is ready to become the personification of a certain part of the late 60s and through the 70s of youth culture. And it didn't necessarily have to turn out that way. I'm sure there were people like Abby who grew up in the 40s and uh, found that they weren't in the kind of atmosphere that would breed a kind of recognition, although there were the Beats and others. But nonetheless, it was a not a collision. It was really a coming together of a historical moment and a very willing, very outgoing, a little bit crazy personality and very bright, very intelligent and very creative. I am sure he could have been an artist, a writer, more than he wrote, but he turned to politics and utilized those skills in an incredibly visible way. You know, we think about Hoffman, his strategy as an activist was focused largely on performance activism. Some people would call it political street theater. Do you think it's accurate? I mean, from what you're talking about, is that related Well, I think so. Yeah. I don't think he, again, he had a perfect personality for that. In addition, street theater was part of radical movements, at least where I was at UC Berkeley. There were the Berkeley Mime Troupe and various other experimental theaters in town. What was the motivation for, do you think, for people like Abby to go to that kind of strategy? Because, you know, you had people that just were orators and would get up and, you know, Bobby Sill would get up and just give a straightforward, uh, great oration. But Abby took a different tack with a street theater. What were they trying to do with street theater? Well, people are made for certain roles. And I think, yes, Bobby Seal could get up in front. I heard him in several times because he was at Oakland. He could get up and just mesmerize a crowd. And Abby wasn't like that. Abby was more of a satirist. He was more of a showman. He wasn't particularly radical in his notions. He was for freedom. He was for liberty. I don't even think the word civil rights, I may be wrong, entered that oration. But it wasn't street theater. It was straight, oh, the rabbi has asked me to give a sermon, so this is what he gave. I'm sure, Don, you remember, and Thorne, you remember this idea of radicalization? Yes, certainly. Yes, yes absolutely. Hit over the head by a cop. All of a sudden, you see the world in a different way. Exactly. And for a nice white liberal kid with a lot of energy, all around him, people were being radicalized, and he himself. Very interesting, Bob. How effective do you think he, looking at it from big picture-wise, how effective do you think he was in in the the anti-war movement, for example? Well, I think one way he was effective, although it He wasn't always covered this way, and probably in Thorne's paper he was covered quite positively, but he kept a richness of reporting about the uh, 
anti-war movement, whether it was levitating the Pentagon or in Chicago. I mean, what would the Chicago Convention have been like without the give and take of Mayor Daley and the Yippies? It wouldn't be remembered. He was a big part of that. That showmanly attitude knew how to sort of put that show together. And Mayor Daley was hardly, you know, he wasn't astute enough to see what what the Yippies were doing. But nonetheless, in those sorts of ways, in other words, in bringing a kind of showman's color to the consciousness of the anti-war movement, I think also later on the environmental movement, although as we talked about at the opening, under an assumed name, but nonetheless there was Abby. And it was a new veneer. It was a, it was he created for the press the outer shell of cultural radicalism in some ways, much in the way that communes did and Woodstock did and all these kind of things that if you watched early cable and you watched VH1 or some show like that, when they do a thing on the 60s, what did you see? (laughs) You didn't see the more conservative students leaving for a ski vacation when their college closed down because of a, uh, you know, demonstration. So uh, (laughs) what they covered were, you know, the exciting clashes of cultures. And uh, he was part of that and a a very colorful, extraordinary part of that. Someone told me that they thought that one of the reasons that he did this sort of performance activism or or street theater or, or, you know, his whole style was, you know, there may have been multiple reasons, like so many things, but one of his goals was to try and attract more young people. I mean, you know, we, we think of the movement as being a young person's movement, but obviously I think if you look at the polling figures and so forth, even those people involved in the anti-war movement and some of the other cultural revolutionary things were still probably a minority. When we're talking about the totality of American youth, and that he thought that, again, this may be totally incorrect. It was someone's perception that he thought that this would do a better job of attracting young people to the issues, as opposed to just stern lectures, let's say. (laughs) Yeah, we got plenty of stern lectures at the time. (laughs) And it was kind of refreshing to see people. Does that sound right, though? I mean, does that sound... It's a reasonable cause and effect, I think. That is, I think his presence attracted younger people who didn't want to hear yet another lecture about how terrible the country was and all that. But I'm not sure it was a conscious decision. I'm not sure he said to himself or said to a group of people, you know, I'm going to become a radical comedian because that's the way we get younger adherence. But I don't see him doing that. I just see him being him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What you were saying earlier, he was just being himself. And we can read back in that, that that was some sort of conscious goal or something, strategy. Okay, this big question. Does Abby have a legacy today? I think so. You know, I was looking at Steal This Book (laughs) the other day after Ben had invited me. And I think if there hadn't been somebody like Abby and a few other people, to make light of the period, even as they were being very serious, it would be very hard to, well, for historians or popular historians or documentarians to not have this 
endlessly somber vision of those times. And the beauty of Abbey was that with all the showmanship, he was also very serious about the cultural revolution, very serious about the political revolution. And so you can dig through him into some of the real issues at hand and the way they were acted out. Elaborate a little as a, as a historian of ideas, Bob, and you've touched on this a little bit, but a little bit more directly, you know, what research and teaching value do papers like this have? Well, both research and teaching. And one of the things that an archive does is once you delve deeply into someone's life, you understand and know that every historical actor has this deep, complicated life out of which he or she is acting. And putting them together is part of the task of a biographer or a sensitive historian is that, and they can only do it with archives. They can only do it when they have access to letters, papers, oral interviews, all sorts of sources that get below the mention in a book. And all of a sudden, you'd see the development of a particular personality that was attracted to and participated in this cultural and political movement. And you might not change your mind about his politics, but you might sort of modify your sense of the use of the term buffoon. Because you all of a sudden see Abby or any person you research, if you have enough material, as a full-fledged human being with all the sorts of conflicts and all the sorts of creativity and all the sorts of changes of consciousness that perhaps any one of us has experienced over even half a lifetime. Well, in this business, I've learned that sometimes people think you should only collect the papers of people they like. You know, it's like a a Hall of Fame or something like that. But your statement is uh, beautifully and well stated, uh, Bob. It's great commentary on really why we do what we do as in terms of the Briscoe Center, but Mm -hmm. also as a fellow historian, why we do what we do as historians. Thorne, first of all, Thorne, before we get going, I just want to say the Briscoe Center is very pleased and be the archival home for your work as host and uh, commentator for the radio program Rag Radio, which gets its title from the name of the legendary 1960s Austin underground newspaper, The Rag, for which you served as an editor. Well, I came to Austin in 63, and I got involved in the movement. It's that kind of thing that you were talking about. It's just this overwhelming change that we all felt. I mean, it was like something was in the air. (laughs) My family were artists and writers, and my father was sort of a liberal humanist, and my mother was a crazy artist and civil rights activist. She was a a very good artist. Oh, she was a terrific artist. Excellent, yeah. And so I was already primed when I came to Austin to get involved. And when I got involved with SDS, when I first got up to Austin. And then we started the RAG in 1966. And the RAG was one of the first and one of the most influential of the 60s underground newspapers. And there ended up being close to a thousand of them. And then I was, so I was in Austin from 63 until 60, I guess it was seven, 
because then I went to I went to Houston. Well, I went to New York and I worked with Liberation News Service, which is one of the places I used to run into Abby. Let's talk about Abby a second. About when you first any recollection you have of him when you were in New York City and and something a little bit about why would he be there? Well, he was everywhere. <laughs> he was all over the place. I mean, I ran into him at the Chicago convention. We were both inside the convention and in the streets with the police riot. I ran into him at the Pentagon when they levitated the Pentagon. It was funny because Ed Sanders, who started the Fugs and is a sort of beatnik man of letters, was on my radio show. And he said, and I said, I was sorry sorry that we didn't actually levitate the Pentagon. And he said, well, we raised it, but we forgot to rotate it. He said, (laughs) we needed to rotate it. So that's why it it came back like it the same way. And so I always, I ran into him in lots of places. I ran into him. He came to Austin. Then I got to know him a little better later when after he was underground. Well, yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you that. I mean, you're one of the more memorable and notorious, I guess, chapters in Abby's uh, career as an activist was, you know, his decision to disappear into the political underground for, gosh, several years to escape uh, criminal prosecution. How did you run into him in Houston during that period? We invited Abby to come to Houston And uh, when I say we, I mean, the Space City, which was the newspaper I was working with then, it was at a time when the Klan was very active in Houston. And he was going to speak at Miller Theater, which he did, the the sort of hippie hill of Houston, and at Rice University, and then at uh, the Continental Club, there was going to be an event afterwards. Well, actually, Leonard Weinglass was supposed to come to Chicago 7 attorney. So this was during the time that the Chicago 7 conviction was being appealed. So like I said, the Ku Klux Klan had become very active in Houston, and we arranged for some black belts, friends of ours, to serve as Abby's bodyguards, accompanying him everywhere he went. The Ku Klux Klan had bombed Pacifica Radio off the air twice, had attacked various progressive groups, and our little underground newspaper Space City had really received much of their wrath. They'd been bombed and Knight Rider shot bullets through the windows. And uh, even my mother's art gallery was shot up. <laughs> the Klan labeled us the infamous dryer rats <laughs> and dedicated an issue in their publication, the rag sheet, to my family. <laughs> so, Oh, my gosh. What an honor, yeah. Thorne. So while Abby was in Houston, one of our staffers saw a car pull up in front of the office there were two police cars, one on either, each end of the street, and they rolled down the, the driver's side window, shot an arrow from a crossbow into the front door of the Space City office, and it had a, a sticker on it that said, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan is watching you. So we, in fact, when Abby left town, we gave him that arrow. We, we presented oh. it. <laughs> Between 2,500 and 5,000, depending upon who was counting, saw Abby at Herman Park. Let me say also, if people are listening to this, it's actually an amphitheater, outdoor amphitheater in Houston's uh, Herman Park, which is uh, that in uh, Memorial Park are the two largest parks in the city. But go ahead. Right. That's true. And, and Herman Park was also sort of a gathering for hippies. They called it Hippie Hill. And that's where he spoke. But there was a lot of reaction then. There were a lot of, clan, a lot of right-wingers who came to that. And Rice University canceled his appearance, called it an unapproved event. There was a fire in the dean of students' office, and students occupied a campus building, which they immediately labeled the Abby Hoffman Free Speech Center. So anyway, this was the wonderful thing. This description of of the gathering in the evening 
uh, which was at the uh, Continental Showcase, which is a music club. This was an FBI memo, and it said, during a later rally at the Continental Showcase, numerous individuals were observed smoking marijuana, utilizing pipes rather than cigarettes, and the marijuana smoke became so thick that one of the waitresses became ill. <laughs> the rally ended with a speech by Abby Hoffman, which was highly critical of the government and was liberally laced with obscenities. <laughs> oh, well, we know that couldn't have been true. Right? So, okay. so anyway, the bodyguards, Abby's bodyguards ended up starting a free karate class for the, for movement people. So that was something that came out of that. Let's back up. Did you actually talk to him or be around him other than what you just described while he was there in Houston during that particular yeah, uh, visit? I, yeah, we visited. We were going with him to the various places that he spoke and stuff. And, uh, and I had some time to visit with him, yeah. So he goes underground, and you play a tiny little part in that, right? Well, the funny thing that happened was I told I mentioned Jeff Nightbird. Jeff Shiro is his name when he was at the Rag and in SDS in Austin. Jeff Nightbird called me up one day and said that he had a couple of friends that he wanted me to meet. And I was at my house with my friend Joan. So he says, can we come by? And just in a few minutes, there's a knock on the door. And he comes in, and there's this nice Jewish guy and this very, very striking tall, striking woman was with him. And he introduced him as Barry and Johanna. And we sat and talked for, for quite a while. And it was a very interesting discussion. And so after a while, they left. And then I got a call back from Jeff. And he said, you know who that was? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, that was Abby. And so anyway, they returned. My, we had dinner with him. Well, what kind of guy was he in that kind of setting? You know, dinner and all it that sort of thing? Very laid back. In this case, he wasn't on stage. I mean, he was always on stage a little bit. <laughs> I mean, you never got the stage out of him entirely. But then they also, they were going to Mexico. This is when they were underground and they were going to Mexico. And so they spent a little, we spent some time together because I was sharing some contacts that I had with people in Mexico that they might want to visit and that kind of thing. So that was fascinating and probably was the most time I ever in one situation spent with, with Abby. Well, let me interject one thing here. You were talking about that striking, tall, good-looking woman, Johanna Hoffman, became Hoffman. I don't know if they were married at that point or not, but they were eventually. And Johanna is the person who really I worked with to get the papers into the archives into the Briscoe Center. She has her own fascinating career, by the way, before she met Abby. She was a internationally known fashion model, magazine model. And her mother, Helen Lawrenson, was the first woman writer that Esquire magazine ever hired back in the early 1930s. And she was quite a part of the literary scene there in Manhattan during the 30s and 40s. So when we worked out the deal to get Abby's papers, we also added Johanna's own extensive collection of papers about her career and as well, her mother's. And uh, so it was really a threefer. We got Abby's, and then we got these the papers of these two important personages. Thorne, in your capacity as the, you know, as the host of uh, RAG Radio, you've interviewed an amazing number of activists and journalists and politicians who pretty much on the left side of the political spectrum. And they range from Texas's own Ronnie Duggar to... Tom Hayden, and even Bernie Sanders. Right. So that's an interesting group of people. Do you have any way of 
saying how Abby Hoffman fits in that spectrum? Uh, I think Abby, Abby and, and in fact, I think Abby was extremely important, an extremely important figure on the left and in the Cultural Revolution. I have a, a friend who's a, an historian who's who wrote a history of the hippies in the 60s, but who's right now writing a book about Austin and the political transformation of Austin. And basically part of his thesis is that that Austin had the hippest politicos and the most political hippies, and that he thinks that was part of what worked in changing Austin. But he wrote a, a note and asked if what I thought about Abby Hoffman, because he said that a lot of stayed old new lefties and academics and whatever didn't like him, thought he was a show-off, thought that he didn't use his actions to try to build an organization or to build a movement. I said that I didn't see any inherent contradiction between being a serious revolutionary and he, and he had used the term media prankster. I didn't see any inherent contradiction there. They didn't organize in the community, but they certainly set off a whole lot of activity as a result of what they did. And they certainly got a, a lot of attention for the anti-war movement and for new left issues. And what they did was very much in the tradition of the spectacle, the large scale surrealistic agit prop theater, you know, in ways that uh, I thought were sometimes rather genius, like the provost, the Dadas, the living theater, all of that stuff I thought was, was very, very significant. And it was in a grand tradition. Well, I think that's an important insight. I mean, it makes me think about the time that he went down to Wall Street, to the stock market, through dollar bills right. on the floor of the stock market and caused a huge scene. <laughs> right. The brokers were scrambling around on the floor, grabbing money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and widely covered by the press, I should say. Yeah. And, and, and my whole thing is that's a picture worth a thousand words, you know? A lot of those running Pegasus for president, those kind of things, and those those photos of those images of that stuff, just traveled everywhere. And so I always thought that that stuff was very important. Well, I think it was brilliant if your goal is to get you know attention to an issue, and it's harmless. It's harmless, also. People are making fools of themselves a little bit, I guess. But well, there were clowns. Know. There were radical clowns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I meant the stock. The oh, stock, stock market. Were, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I don't a, think Abby was making a fool of herself. But, uh, yeah. So. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, there were other groups that did similar things, like the well, of course, I said the provost, but in this country, the diggers and the San Francisco Meme Troop and a number of other groups. Well, let me ask you what, kind of sort of a final question here. We're going to have you back, by the way, Thorne, because I talk about your own collection uh, in another podcast. But we've been actively, the Briscoe Center has been actively collecting papers and archives, uh, documenting the history of political activism, social activism, anti-war movement, and so forth in the 60s and 70s. And why do you think that's important for us to do? Oh, wow. I think it's critically important. Otherwise, that stuff just gets lost. And it's also, I think, the, the, what you're putting together at, at UT, at Briscoe, you're also, it's thematic. You're pulling together a lot of really important stuff. It's accessible to the public. It's accessible to academics. And getting people, something like Abby Hoffman's papers, I think is just, is extremely valuable. I'm so proud to be a part of it. The Bresco Center preserves the raw materials of the past, 
Today's episode was made possible by the Abby Hoffman Papers. The collection includes manuscript drafts of his speeches, his FBI file, photographs, drawings, posters, ephemera, records from the Chicago 7 trial, and extensive files of correspondence with a wide variety of individuals, including President Jimmy Carter, John Lennon, David Bowie, Norman Mailer, Walter Cronkite, Allen Ginsberg, and Studs Terkel. The Abby Hoffman papers are among thousands housed at the center. People across America have entrusted this evidence to us. And it's used by people from across America. In addition to inspiring their work, it inspires our own. Books, documentaries, exhibits, online repositories, and digital humanities projects. By collecting, preserving, and making available these materials, we help keep the debates and arguments about who we are rooted in evidence, and we keep the American Rhapsody going. <laughs>